is a bit of a, a little thing I wanted to show you before we actually started. This is my Phones For You badge. Oh. I used to work, granted it was after you exited the businesses, but I used to um, work at Phones For You. So oh, that's my fantastic. actual badge. Uh, 10 years ago, that's where I used to work. So I was just a sales executive, but- In, in um, the shops or? In the shop, yeah. Mm. It was, it was in, uh, in Western Super actually. So yeah. yeah. Were you there when it collapsed? I was, unfortunately. Yeah. Way. I mean, what was what was your reaction when, when that happened? Oh, when, I, did you see it coming ahead of time? No, no. Nobody could see it coming because it was it was collusion. Yeah. It was complete illegal collusion and nobody could have seen it happen. If I'd have been in the business still, maybe I would have seen it because I was always nervous about the networks. You know, they, when you've got very few suppliers, the network relationships are critical. And um, an O2 axed phones for you six months before. Now that then puts the writing on the wall. And what I would have known was that the networks wanted to get rid of me. I always knew that, you know. Uh, the whole relationship um, with all the manufacturers and the networks was such that they desperately wanted you to grow the distribution, but they never wanted you to gain so much power that you'd got a degree of control of the situation. And of course, the, the way I grew the businesses gave me not control, but it gave me a bit more of a balanced relationship with these manufacturers or networks who desperately wanted the business but didn't want me too powerful. So they were constantly trying to clip me down all the time, sort of wanting the business and yet really being frightened. And they, their favorite expression is, we don't want the tail wagging the dog. That was the expression. So I was the tail, they were the dog and they can cut the tail off if they need to. So it's always, always a, uh, a delicate situation. But the more the market matured, the more the writing was on the wall because Carphone Warehouse and ourselves created a real high street war that gave customers great value. The last thing that the networks wanted was great value for the customers because it reduced their margin. So it was always going to be a risk situation. And when O2, cancel the contract with phones for you six months before it was really an indication now what would i have done in that i don't know i don't know because i wasn't there but um but then the collusion over the weekend or just on the friday or whenever it was uh it was devastating of course because once two networks pulled out the only two networks nowhere for phones for you to go except liquidation yeah, I, I remember I woke up to the Sky News report that I'd lost my job, but that was that was an interesting time. And you know, looking back at, at Phones for You as a business now, um, obviously it was it was kind of the perfect time of when phones really were taking off, cell phones were taking off. Um, do you think a, a business like that could ever, you know, is is that a repl replicatable uh, kind of business, or do you think that was kind of the perfect time in in the world? No, it's not replicate. It, it can't be replicated now. No, because it was a land grab by the networks. And the networks and the manufacturers desperately needed volume. Volume was a real crucial part of the game. That gave me the negotiating power, not that that was easy. And I mean, it's a constant edge of the seat thing because every time uh, I negotiated a deal that enabled me to grow market share, I grew my power. And every time I grew my power, they tried to clip my wings. So they were constantly looking at how can we get the best out of phones for you but not let them get too powerful. And they did some horrible things over the years. You know, I mean, really incredibly stressful uh, actions. Uh, one of the reasons I ended up selling the business because the, the stress level of managing where you've got somebody 
who completely controls your existence is a very uncomfortable place to be. And there's your badge back, by the way. Thank well you. done, George. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So obviously, you know, we're, we're fast. We're moving around a little bit in the journey, but let's go back to, um, you know, I'll, I'll go and find a, a young John Caldwell, a, uh, you know, in, in your own words, a ginger curly haired boy with freckles, say 10 years old. If I found him and said to him, he would be a billionaire, he would help 65,000 kids through Caldwell children. Um, and that's just kind of scratching the surface. What do you think your reaction at that stage would be? Would you, would that have been an expected thing or is it just- No, no, it would much? be incredulous, wouldn't it? I mean, even if you'd have asked a 30 year old John Caldwell or maybe even a 35 year old John Caldwell, was that likely? Um, I think helping the children, that might be, have been likely from day one because I was always, I'd always got this hugely driven desire to help change some parts of the world as much as I was able to. So I'd always got that, but you can't do that without the wealth. You know, you can do little bits without the wealth, but you can't do big things without the wealth. So I, I don't think that I would have ever uh, thought about the wealth. I would have never thought that I could be maybe even a multimillionaire, let alone a billionaire. But that times evolve, you know, and you make your first bit of money and then you start thinking, well, the, the first thing was, could I get into the Sunday Times rich list? You know, I mean, it seems to me looking back at that, what a, a facile sort of superficial um, target to have. But you measure your success over years in different ways. And in those early years, um, being valued at say 50 million and making the Sunday Times rich list seemed like I'd hit the jackpot. You know, it seemed as though uh, I'd really made it. But after a while, uh, that, that sort of becomes exactly what it is, which is superficiality and completely facile. So if we go back to the beginning of your journey, creating the Cold War Group, which would, phones for you would become a part of, um, could you just tell us a little bit about that journey, where it started and obviously where it ended up um, with your exit? Um, well, the, the absolute start was because I was trading cars and I needed to call the customers and you couldn't get to the BT phone box. So by the time you'd got your customer, you'd lost the opportunity for the car. So I once eventually saw this guy come into the auction with a great big suitcase phone. And I thought, wow, what's that? I mean, I had no idea what it was. In those days, this was 80, 80 early 86. And none of us had ever seen a device like that. And I went over to him and started chatting to him and it was a mobile phone. Well, mobile, you know, it was like <laughs> sort of mobile. Yeah. And uh, the more I sort of chatted to him about this, the more I, I just thought it was incredible that this device existed because I didn't know anything about them. Uh, and that was the start of the journey because I thought, well, this will be a really useful business tool. So I came back to the office and then tried to find a supplier of mobile phones. It's unbelievable now looking back, given where we are today, but you could not find anybody that could sell you a mobile phone. You couldn't find anybody. So you ring BT because you find out that BT is something to do with it. BT, nobody in BT knew about Cellnet. They owned it, but they didn't know about it. So it, that, that, was, that was the start of the journey. Anyway, I, I eventually bought two, uh, 26 mobile phones from Motorola, set up a dealer account, bought 26 phones and lost money every month for two years. So that was the start of the journey, not, not an auspicious start. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, of, of our audience are going through kind of a similar, 
uh, journey or maybe going through a similar journey in their business, you know, kind of growing it and, you know, in, in your, your case, kind of similar losing money. Um, at what point did you think, or did you ever think, I don't know if this is the right thing, or were you just laser focused on that vision that you had? It, it was very expensive losses because I was losing £2,000 every month. Uh, out of the car sales at the time, I was making four or five, but losing half of it. So, I mean, four or £5,000 a month wasn't a lot, even in those days. And I was losing half of it, which was very painful. But I absolutely believed in the future of mobile phones. I could not see why they wouldn't catch on. Because, to me, they were clearly a vital business tool. But they were very expensive. At that time, I certainly didn't see it becoming the, the, the sort of consumable product it is today, where every single person has one or more. I didn't see that, but I did see every businessman having one. So I thought sales were really, uh, the future was really going to be prosperous. Mm -hmm. uh, but the turning point actually was two years later when three of my people resigned. I had six people running my two businesses and I lost three of them. So I lost people in the car sales business and I lost the person managing my mobile phone business. So I had to focus on the mobile phone business and within three or four weeks, I'd turned a £2,000 loss into £20,000 profit against the normal five or six that I was making in the car business. So all of a sudden, I found levers that I could pull that were, going to, that were hugely profitable. Um, and that was the start of the journey, really. That was when I really knew that we could do great things in mobile phones. Yeah, and I mean, the, the stats of, of phones for you, especially, you know, you, when you're looking at the early 2000s, they were absolutely staggering really um and i mean it's it's it again it's an interesting journey that a, a lot of our uh, audience are going to be going through where you're building up the right talent you are um you know you have trusted people around you um but obviously it was a, the same with phones for you where you're always running a risk where you build up uh, this incredible team and then they start getting poached because you know phones for you was known for being full of brilliant salespeople, and you know your your inner circle was you know highly sought after. Um, how did you find that kind of retaining talent? And did you, did you have any kind of tips that you would give business owners today to kind of make sure that they retain the right talent? Well, it's not rep replicable in every business, but there's a number of levers, obviously. Uh, one of the levers for me was that I was intending to be the UK's most successful cellular business. And most people who are ambitious want to be part of a hugely winning formula. So the prestige of working in the Cordwell Group was one of those levers, but it's nowhere near enough on its own. So then you have to make sure that what you're doing is paying people appropriately, putting big bonuses in for exceptional performance. But for the top people, I, always, I also put a wealth creation scheme in. Uh, and that wealth creation scheme was designed in such a way that gave me quite a lot of control, but at the same time gave the employee a real chance of a significant payday eventually. And kind of fast forward to 2006 when you did sell the business. Um, was that a difficult decision at the time or had you kind of had your heart set that you were looking to sell the business. Just tell us a little bit about those circumstances. No, it was an evolution. You know, selling the business was very much an evolution. Um, I'd had about 16 years of massive stress. And some of the things that happened to me were, were potentially terminal. And I found ways through those terminal challenges. Like Motorola cancelling my 
uh, my contract in the early days when it was 95%, 90-95% of my business and all of a sudden they cut off supply and I got all these overheads and no supply. I mean, it was really potentially a very terminal situation, but I found answers to it. But each time you go through that, the stress levels are enormous. You know, you've got all those employees, all of that business, all that could just collapse like a house of cards. Mm. So it was a very difficult and lonely place to be. And after 16 years of fighting like that, um, and also realizing that I hadn't fulfilled much of my charitable endeavors. I had founded Cordwell Children. At that time, we had helped about four or 5,000 children, but it was nowhere near, uh, nowhere near the changes that I wanted to make during my lifetime. So I ended up just thinking, you know, maybe the time is right to sell. And that was in early, two, early 2000, probably 2002. So from then on, I really started grooming the company for a sale and positioning it for a sale, which of course, of course uh, occurred in 2006. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of business leaders that we talk to who have gone through a sale, you know, they, they do use the word selling your baby was even though, you know, you had the stresses and, you know, you'd, you'd put the, the steps in place over those four years to kind of make it a saleable business after you had exited, was there any kind of remorse there or were you kind of set on your charitable endeavors and kind of- It was an interesting progression as well. Uh, uh, definitely an interesting progression because in the early stages, it was selling my baby. So if you go from let's say 2002, can I really sell this baby? Because it's exactly that, you know, you've grown it from zero because there was only me. You've grown it from zero to eventually 12,000 employees you become the biggest in the UK and we were biggest in the world in, in certain aspects like distribution of phones and distribution of accessories. So at some periods we were biggest in the world in some areas. So the, the sense of satisfaction and achievement that goes with that is huge and the sense of identity is huge, but it's also your baby. So it's, it's sort of everything, you know, it, it's your entire life. It's your family, it's your ego, it's your identity, it's everything. So in the early days, it was very, very difficult, very much that I'm selling my baby. But as we got through the sale, or, or not through the sale, but as we got nearer to it, and the stresses and pressures were just continuing at a massive pace, um, and then we got into the sale process, and that was really hit and miss all the way through. So the eventual day when we absolutely finalized the deal, it was a massive sense of relief. And that never changed because it then enabled me to do everything that I wanted to do from a charitable perspective and from other, you know, from other opportunities. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's, there's a kind of, there's two trains of thought um, with people starting businesses now, which is one that says, you know, prepare for a sale, even if you don't want to sell, prepare your business as if you're going to sell it. The other is don't worry about selling your business. That's just gonna be a distraction. Um, in, in hindsight, or kind of throughout your experience um, starting businesses, which kind of train of thought would you say you subscribe to? Both. 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 Yeah, it, you know, I say both because if you, if you groom in your business to sell and you're doing it wrongly, then that is a distraction. But if you groom in your business to sell and it's absolutely everything that you do is what you need to do to prosper and grow it and make it successful, make it robust, 
um, look at the quality of earnings, try and get the quality of earnings. All of those things are great for your business and great for the sale. So as long as you're not ducking and diving and manipulating the situation, the two are synonymous. You know, the two are one in the same side of the coin. They only become different sides of the coin if you're taking short-termist strategies to try and sell your business and sell it out on a high, um, but actually sacrificing the future as a consequence. And we do see that happening in business all the time, of course, where <clears throat> some chief executive sacrifices the future by under-investing in the future, and do they do that just for the short-termism. If short-termism creeps in like that, then then absolutely, that's absolutely wrong. You've got to take this balanced view of grooming the business in the most profitable way for the short, medium and long term. And we'll, we'll kind of stay on the phones for you, kind of track, um, thinking about company culture. And the one thing that phones for you was very well known for was a very robust, competitive culture, which was um, very almost unique um, at that time and obviously you know, things have changed in company culture and the way that people do things now. When you look at kind of the landscape of business um, with working from home, et cetera, um, how do you kind of feel uh, building culture? Do you think it would be more difficult now than it would be obviously when you did it at Phones for You? I think from a point of view of employee relations, it undoubtedly would be more difficult. You know, I never believed in working from home. I still don't. Um, that doesn't mean certain people can, you know, it's good for certain people and certain employees into certain situations. But what you want is a big dynamic environment where everybody's learning from each other and where managers can coach, teach, peers can help, you know, and you get a dynamic environment that's exciting and a buzz. Of course, it does depend what you're doing, because if you're an architect working from home, that's fine. You know, you don't need that buzz you're designing things and so it's horses for courses but in a business like phones for you and it's not just phones for you of course because there was 19 other companies within the group as well all associated to mobiles in one way shape or form but it was all based on dynamicism excitement and you know hype and really really make this happen and and teaching people and coaching so there's a huge amount of coaching. How can you do that if people are working from home it would undoubtedly more be more difficult and I do think you know, since COVID, people have reevaluated their situation. Uh, Middle-aged people, have, in a lot of cases, have decided they don't need work anymore, that they can survive and have given up work. And some of them now, of course, are coming back to work because times are getting hard and they're coming back to work. Youngsters think they can work from home and they, they don't seem as ambitious or devoted as they were in my day. So no, I think it would be more difficult today without doubt. Yeah, absolutely. And again, kind of taking a, a view of the landscape, um, especially when you look at fundraising now or starting a business, um, there's definitely something, especially in the tech sector, where it's very much a um, fundraising, giving a high valuation before making a profit. Um, so, you know, the fundraising, you know, the announcement, the press release that we've raised this much money, not about how much profit we've made, but we've raised this much money is something that's going on quite a bit. Um, what are your kind of views on that, about the, the crazy valuations that are going on at the moment versus kind of, you know, making profit and then that's how you... you, you well, I think contrary in the previous point I made, which was more about employee culture, mm. I think it's easier today than it's ever been to become super wealthy 
because the dot-com boom, which of course came and went and now is back again, if you've got a globalized strategy with a internet-based product of any sort that can be successful, you can roll that out on a phenomenal scale. And in my day, you couldn't really do that because towards the end of phones for you, of course, we were internet, we had got internet sales, um, but the internet really only came in, into its own probably in the last 10, 15 years. So with the internet today, the opportunities are immense if you get the right product. And look, look at all the applications people design. If you get the right application, you, you, your ability to create billions of wealth is phenomenal. That, that was never the case 30 years ago. Um, John, what would you say is your prognosis for the UK economy uh, at the moment? Uh, well, well that, 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 you know, I'm, I'm very, very disappointed on where we are because in March 2020, when the pandemic came, I launched Cordwell Pandemic Recovery because I visualized catastrophic consequences of the pandemic, pandemic on the economy. And the main focal point of Cordwell Pandemic Recovery, there was four focal points, but the main one was to have an enterprise zone somewhere in the UK, a huge enterprise zone, which for a number of years would be a tax-free enterprise zone, and it would only be for environmental-friendly technologies. And we would recruit businesses from all over the world to come to this zone. And they'd come to the zone because of the tax advantages that we were able to give them as a consequence of Brexit. It's one of the reasons I was a very strong Brexiteer, because you could not do this as part of the EU because they wouldn't allow it. So having an enterprise zone and attracting environmental technologies into the UK could have created a huge, huge future for Britain. And if the Tories had done what I was suggesting in March 2020, and I campaigned government endlessly on this, if they'd have done that, now we'd still be in the same economic gloom that we've got today. But what we would be saying is, we've already got 50 companies signed up for this zone we'll get a thousand companies or whatever it is, we'll be producing environmental technologies that the whole world will be wanting in the future. And we will be able to export the product and the intellectual property all over the world. And Britain will be booming in 10 years time. They'd have, we'd have something to tell the world that would be absolutely phenomenally exciting and positive. And unfortunately, the government have done nothing. And where we are now is in the doldrums. And, you know, I'm, I'm devastated for the UK because the opportunity hasn't been grasped and there was a massive opportunity. And now we find ourselves in a mess with the, the economy looking like growing the least in, in Europe and uh, the great in Great Britain slipping away. And it didn't have to be like that. It shouldn't have been. And the politicians have just not done the right job. Yeah. There's a quite popular school of thought that um, billionaires such as yourself who have these great ideas um, and don't have as much to lose as maybe politicians do if you're looking at a four-year cycle or five-year cycle, for example. Um, and a, a lot of people say that the billionaires uh, such as yourself, such as Jeff Bezos, such as Elon Musk, should be involved more, especially in business policy. Um, what, would, what are your thoughts on that? I think anybody getting involved could do a better job than some of our politicians. I mean, you know, the, 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 problem, the problem with politics is people getting it for the wrong reasons. 
they get in it for power, they get in it for fame and for, but not fortune. You know, so all the time they're just driving for a different set of objectives. And what we really need is politicians who are commercially minded, who are driving Britain as a PLC, because that's all we are. You know, Britain is very much as a business, like I am, I'm a business, I drive the business and then I pour my money into charity. Well, Britain's the same. Britain's a business, we need to create wealth and from that wealth, we can look after the poorer members of society. We can provide wonderful social services, great healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. But if the business doesn't prosper, we can't do any of that. So first and foremost is get the business right. And we never do. John, do you think, as you sit here today, do you feel, obviously, we're in this beautiful home of yours. Um, you are on the Sunday Times rich list. So there we go. Tick on that one. Um, do you feel you've been successful? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I'm very happy with my commercial success. Um, I've not been interested since selling phones for you in further commercial success, although I've got, I've got commercial enterprises. But it's not about making money, really. It's about the, the fun of creating something that is, uh, for instance, in the case of One Mayfair, something that's magnificent, and that I've got the target of making the world's most prestigious uh, residencies. So... Part of it is to, to do with just creating beauty where before there was ugliness. Um, creating some wealth as well, but my number one objective in life is to make a difference to the world in a positive way that improves people's lives. I've done that with, uh, I think it's now 70,000 children in the UK, but we're going to keep growing that. But I've also just founded Cordwell Youth. And Cordwell Youth is a charity now that uh, I'm financing. And what we do, we put one-on-one -on -one mentors with young people who are at risk. And they could be at risk from drug addiction, drug dealing, criminality, uh, mental health, um, sexual exploitation. So any at-risk young person, we put a one-on-one -on -one mentor to and try and, and try and get them through the crisis situation and help to protect them. That is going to make a massive difference to society because when one of these young people go wrong, if they go to prison, it costs the government half a million pounds a year to keep that young person in prison. But not only that, what about all the crime that the young person commits against society, burgling people's houses or whatever it is? So this, this is a charity really that I've only founded four months ago, but I am absolutely focused on because we can make a colossal difference. Uh, so the, the objective there is to expand that throughout the UK over the next few years and save tens of, tens of thousands of young people from going down a really destructive and bad pathway for themselves and for society. Your societal outlook is, is really, really interesting. And obviously you mentioned sustainability before um, and your Mayfair One development has a, a very interesting um, sustainability angle to it. Um, you quite famously uh, saw the financial coming, saw the financial uh, crash in 2008 coming well ahead of time. Um, if you kind of take that same outlook to the sustainability and, and what is going on in the government uh, around the world at the moment, um, what, would your, what would your outlook be? Well, I think, I think clearly what's become very obvious is security. Um, forget, for, if, you, if you said what are my big concerns in life, number one is the viability of the earth to, to, to survive. 
I have a very negative view on our survivability. I don't think anywhere near enough is being done. It's not just about climate change. Climate change is one of the factors. The real issue is water shortage. That's above and beyond climate change, but climate change affects water shortage as well. But there's water shortage regardless of climate change. If we're not overheating the planet, we're still going to have massive water shortage. That's the number one issue. We've then got the contributing factors to that that's all to do with the environment. And we're living in a very toxic world. So that's my number one concern, the toxicity of this world. My number two concern now, uh, and it's really because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is security of the world. We've got all these megalomaniacs in North Korea, in China, in Russia, and many other parts of the world. And what we seem to have is a real attack on Western-style democracy by megalomaniac, genocidal people who don't give two thoughts about human life, who are prepared to slaughter as many people as they need to do to fulfill their own objectives. It's always been the case, you know, you go back to the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the British Empire, even where we were uh, dreadful with slavery, stealing blacks away from their homes in Africa. You know, it's always been there, always will be there because there's always going to be these psychopathic, uh, greedy human beings on the planet. So that's always going to be the case. But I think for me, the Russians invading Ukraine have really brought that home in a big, big way. And I think that's now in most of the Western world feeling that way. And it's why we're now substantially increasing defense budgets all through the Western world. And that, that's a really colossal risk, the number two risk to climate change. Could you just tell us about uh, your book, uh, Love, Pain and Money? Um, how did that come about? Well, it came about as a result of the pandemic because I suddenly couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. I was trapped at home, which wasn't a bad place to be trapped, actually, because I've got 28 acres. So yeah. I felt very sorry at the time for those people that had got kids in an apartment and were trapped in an apartment. I was in luxury, really, because I'd got my garden to wander around in. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I turned my attentions to the house, to the garden. Um, of course, I'd got my businesses still to keep running, which was difficult within that environment. Um, but I suddenly found a little bit of spare time. And people have been encouraging me to write an autobiography for ooh, 20, 30 years. So I suddenly bit the bullet and started doing it. And uh, was it emotional? It was incredibly emotional because I had to search, you know, sort of almost to the depths of my darkest, uh, darkest moments in life to tell the story. And some of those stories were very emotional for me. And both I and the uh, autobiography, Louise, who's my ghostwriter, uh, both of us were in tears many a time with the severity of the stories because she really got inside my brain. But she also opened me up. You know, I, I relived devastating memories. And so, yeah, I know it was a very, very emotional experience. Yeah. Enjoyable, but also um, at times extremely sad and painful. Yeah. And that's why the pain comes into the title, because my life is all about love, all about pain and all about money. So, John, thank you for that last answer. Um, we've teamed up with the Jill Dando News Centre um, to give you a feature called the Good News Postcard. And your question today comes from Dennis, age 13.
and my name is Dennis from the Giordano News Center. My question for you is, what has been your most challenging moment and how have you overcome it? Thank you. Well, thank you for that question, Dennis. I, it's very difficult to answer, actually, because I've had so many challenging moments, and I presume you do mean in business, but I've had huge challenging moments with family health and with business uh, real traumas. But I think probably the most serious one was really in the early days of mobile phones when Motorola cut off my supply completely with no warning. And Motorola those days was over 90% of my business. So I'd got all of the overhead and I'd got 90% of my business disappeared overnight. And I had to find a solution to that. Um, I did find solutions and the solutions actually were incredibly profitable in the long term. So there's an expression in life that necessity is the mother of invention. I was always inventing anyway, but this crisis was, gave me such necessity that I invented at a much greater rate, which completely saved the day and made us even more prosperous in the long term. Last couple of questions for you. Um, what is one fact about you that we can't find online? Ooh, um, it's a good question. Um, I've been very open, really, you know, in talking about my whole life and especially when writing the book. So there's a, a huge amount that's not on the Internet. And all of the stuff that's not on the Internet is in my autobiography, Love, Pain and Money. And there's a huge amount in that book that will amaze people because they they see a billionaire in this luxury home and they've got no idea that I've suffered a lot or even more of the dramas and the traumas that they suffer. And so we're all in the same boat. I just end up being now in a very rich boat. And we are business leaders, so we have to ask you the question, um, what makes a great business leader? Well, there's, there's so many different facets of being a great business leader. You've definitely got to have commercial acumen. And, you know, commercial intellect is nothing to do with intellect, not normal intellect anyway. Normal intellect, you get all the Oxbridge graduates coming out with their first class honours degrees. Does that mean they've got commercial intellect? Not at all. Some of them might have, but you've got to have commercial intellect. And that's the ability to spot an opportunity and turn things inside out, upside down, and actually make money out of something that most other people don't see. So that's a, bit, that's a big one. But clearly, you've got to have all the other facilities. So there's ambition, drive, passion, resilience, commercial intellect I've mentioned, and finally, leadership. If you haven't got resilience, when the tough, when, when, when the, the going gets really tough, you might collapse uh, physically or mentally. So the resilience to fight through no matter what happens is crucial. But the other aspect, of course, of building anything of scale is leadership. And you've got to be able to lead people. And people often said to me at interview, I'm a people person. I said, what the hell does that mean? What's people person? Often leadership is not about being quite a people person because people person sort of suggests you're a people pleaser. You can't lead people and be a people pleaser. You've got to lead people hard, fair, driven, 
an exciting, provide an exciting environment. And it does mean that you're going to be holding people to account a lot. But when you hold people to account, it te there's a teaching lesson in that. So as long as you're fair with it and, 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 and do it in a positive way, that's leadership, leading people to be the best version of themselves they possibly can. And that's not this twee answer of, well, I'm good with people. Mm. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, John, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Do you have any final words for our audience at all? Well, your audience is a business audience, isn't it? And uh, I, I think there's nothing more exciting in life than what you're doing creating businesses. But equally, there's a huge amount of challenges. And no matter what challenges come your way, what I would say, you've just got to fight and do everything in your power to survive. Be ethical run an ethical and moral business, gain a great brand and a great reputation, always do what you say you're going to do, and hopefully it all will come good in the end, but it won't be without its extreme challenges. Yeah, no, absolutely. And where can people uh, follow your journey and, and find you online? <laughs> JohnCordwell.com, yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's where we keep all the latest inf information and up to date, but that won't tell them the stuff that's in the book. Um, and also, in the, the, don't forget that the book, all the profits from the book go to charitable ventures. So it all goes into charity. And so when people buy the book, not only are they going to get a great read and great tips for in their business, but they will be helping charity as well.